1817, an English surgeon published an essay describing six case reports of patients he had encountered. They all had a rusting tremor, abnormal posture and gait, and eventual paralysis. He called it paralysis agitans, or shaking palsy. Years later, the French neurologist Jean-Martin Charcot would add considerable knowledge to our understanding of this disease, while also suggesting it be renamed after the original surgeon who described it. The surgeon's name was James Parkinson, and the disease came to be known as, you guessed it, Parkinson's disease. Today, our patient has Parkinson's disease, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled Patterns of Parkinson's and will focus on the history and physical exam for this disease. Time for our minute physiology. What is Parkinson's disease? Well, it's defined as a progressive degenerative disorder that affects a patient's motor functions through loss of the extrapyramidal system. The underlying pathophysiology is loss of dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra and basal ganglia. This results in excess excitation of the extrapyramidal motor system, resulting in increased muscle tone. As the disease progresses, patients can have involvement of non-dopaminergic regions of the brain, resulting in non-motor symptoms, which we will discuss later in the podcast. 90% of Parkinson's disease is sporadic, caused by a combination of oxidative stress to dopaminergic neurons, aging, and genetics. The other 10% of patients have the familial disease. Okay, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about your approach to the history and physical exam for Parkinson's disease, either on the ward, in the eMERGE, or even on your OSCE, as it is a frequent exam scenario. Our patient is a 68-year-old man who has been referred to your general internal medicine clinic with a resting tremor and fatigue. Before we go to see our patient, it's helpful to think through a differential. Although the differential for tremor or fatigue can be long, for the purposes of this podcast, let's discuss the differential for Parkinsonism. Parkinsonism is a general term for the constellation of symptoms of bradykinesia and rigidity and or tremor. This means that other diseases, apart from Parkinson's disease, sometimes referred to as idiopathic Parkinson's disease, can cause Parkinsonian features. The reason you might think of Parkinsonism when you hear about this patient with a resting tremor and fatigue is that bradykinesia is often described in early stages by patients as weakness, incoordination, or fatigue. Combine that with a suspicious resting tremor, and it's time to think about your differential for Parkinsonism. Here are the key differential diagnoses you should consider. 1. Idiopathic Parkinson's disease. 2. Drug-induced Parkinsonism. 3. Lewy body dementia. 4. Parkinson's plus syndromes, including multisystem atrophy and progressive supranuclear palsy. And 5. Vascular Parkinsonism, such as a stroke or lesion. Okay, let's go see the patient and walk through a focused history and physical exam to assess for Parkinson's disease. Let's break the history down into four big categories. Number 1. Past medical history. Ask the patient or their family member if they have a pre-existing diagnosis of dementia or have had previous strokes. This could suggest Lewy body dementia or vascular Parkinsonism as the cause for their symptoms. Number two, medications. Check for medications that can cause drug-induced Parkinsonism. These include any dopamine D2 receptor blockers, such as antipsychotics, including Haldol, chlorpromazine, olanzapine, risperidone, and aripiprazole. Other common drugs that have D2 effects that we don't always think about include metoclopramide and prochlorperazine. Number three, family history. Has anyone in their family been diagnosed with Parkinson's before? Family history is the only clear risk factor for developing Parkinson's disease. 
Number four, history of presenting illness. This is a big category. There are many symptoms associated with Parkinson's, some of which are nonspecific and erroneously attributed to normal aging, including fatigue, muscle weakness, slight stiffness, or slowing down. As we mentioned above, this is actually often how patients first describe the onset of bradykinesia and rigidity. According to the JAMA Rational Clinical Exam, one of the best questions you can ask on history for bradykinesia is whether patients have difficulty rolling over in bed, which is a positive likelihood ratio of 13. Other symptoms to note include tremor in hands or limbs, often noted unilaterally at first, shuffling or stooped gait, which is where patients tend to bend forward, flexing at the hip. It is not actually known why this occurs, but it's suspected to be due to muscle rigidity and lack of postural control. Trouble buttoning clothes, changes in their handwriting called micrographia, where the size of their letters decreases by the end of the sentence, quiet voice and decreased facial expressions termed masked facies, and hypoosmia or reduced smell, which can be an early feature of the disease. What about that handy mnemonic you've heard about? For those of you unfamiliar with what I'm alluding to, TRAP is often used to remind learners of the most common symptoms of Parkinson's disease. It stands for tremor, rigidity, akinesia or bradykinesia, and postural instability. It's important to note that postural instability is actually a finding seen in late disease, usually 5 to 10 years after other symptoms have begun. Other late-onset symptoms include falls, dysphagia, and autonomic dysfunction, including postural hypotension, urinary retention, and sexual dysfunction. You may also want to probe for non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease. As mentioned in our pathophysiology, over time, other areas of the brain can be affected, resulting in symptoms such as psychosis and hallucinations, mood disorders like depression, anxiety, and apathy, and dementia and advanced disease. Dementia is actually present in more than 80% of patients who have had Parkinson's disease for more than 20 years. Okay, that's it for history. To quickly summarize, ask about past medical history, including dementia or strokes, medications, including antipsychotics, metoclopramide, or prochlorperazine, and family history. On history of presenting illness, ask about trouble rolling over in bed, tremor, gait changes, and changes to voice, handwriting, mood, and smell. Remember as well that sometimes patients present with a quote-unquote vague history or difficulty with their daily activities or functional decline due to these changes. Now on to our physical exam. First, assess the patient's vital signs. Not only will this help you to ensure they are stable, but it may also give you clues to the diagnosis. The key pearl with vitals is to check for postural hypotension. Although this is a late disease finding, it can be an important point not to miss, especially if your patient is coming in with falls. Remember the definition is an increase in heart rate of 30 or decrease in systolic blood pressure of 20 or diastolic of 10. After vitals, you will always do a complete initial assessment, including neurologic, cardiac, respiratory, and abdominal exam when you assess a patient for the first time. However, for the purposes of this podcast, we'll only discuss a focused physical exam for Parkinson's disease. Starting with inspection, here are the key findings head to toe that you should look for. One, masked facies. This is due to decreased movement of the small facial muscles and results in decreased blinking and widening of the palpebral fissures, creating the appearance that the patient is staring. Two, speech changes, including a quiet voice, hypophonia, monotonous speech, apropsody, or bradykinesic dysarthria. Three, tremor. Don't forget this one. This is classically described as an asymmetric, four to five hertz, pill rolling resting tremor, noticed particularly in the hands. As the disease progresses, it can move to the legs, lips, jaw, and tongue, and rarely the head. 
Another key pearl is that a tremor is the presenting symptom in 70% of patients. As well, it is a resting tremor, so you should see that the tremor resolves or significantly improves when the patient does intentional movements. To assess this, ask the patient to do finger-to-nose testing. The tremor should disappear or become significantly less apparent. The one caveat to this is that if the patient has a very severe tremor, you may still see it with intentional activities, but it should at least improve. Next up is your neurological exam, which is where the bulk of your findings will be. Make sure you spend enough time on this section so that you don't miss points important to diagnosing the patient. On cranial nerves, be sure to test the full extraocular movements. In patients that have a Parkinson's Plus syndrome called progressive supranuclear palsy, or PSP, they will have a vertical gaze palsy. This is actually one of the exclusion criteria for idiopathic Parkinson's disease. On reflexes, check for a glabellar tap. To do this, stand behind the patient and gently tap on their forehead between their eyes. It's important that they can't see your hand coming and why you don't do it standing in front of them. Remember to give the patient a heads up on what you are about to do. At first, all patients will blink in response to each tap. However, in normal patients, they will eventually override this reflex after about six or seven taps and stare straight ahead without blinking. In comparison, patients with Parkinson's disease will continue to blink. This is actually a type of primitive reflex also seen in some types of dementia where it's termed a frontal release sign. Next, test for rigidity, cogwheeling, and bradykinesia. For rigidity, remember that it differs from spasticity in that it is velocity independent. Parkinson's rigidity is classically described as lead pipe, which is the feeling of smooth resistance throughout the passive range of motion. Cogwheeling, on the other hand, is rigidity felt as a disjointed sensation of resistance and relaxation during movement, thought to be due to the tremor with superimposed increased tone. Be sure to test for rigidity in the upper and lower extremities, as isolated lower extremity rigidity can suggest an alternative diagnosis, namely vascular Parkinsonism. You can also test for upper motor neuron findings, such as the Babinski reflex, to add to the vascular Parkinsonism picture. What about bradykinesia? Can you just look at the patient and say whether they're moving slowly? On your gait assessment, maybe but there are actually a number of easy ways to objectively assess for bradykinesia using rapid alternating movements. You should see a fatiguing of movement over time, meaning that the amplitude and velocity of the movement should decrease the longer the patient does the movement. Specific tests include finger tap or pinching, where you have the patient spread their hands out like they are giving you a high five, then try to touch their index finger to their thumb as fast as they can. Remember, in bradykinesia, you will see that their fingers tap in slower and smaller and smaller movements over time, indicating decreased velocity and amplitude. Next is foot tapping. With the patient sitting in a chair, ask them to tap their toes on the ground, keeping their heel planted as fast as they can. Like finger tapping, the amplitude and velocity of their movements will decline to the point that they are barely lifting their toes off the ground with each tap. Lastly, try the arm wheel. It looks like you're doing the wheels on the bus song, but the patient's arms will start to bump into each other the longer they do the movement. Finally, as mentioned, postural instability is a late finding of Parkinson's disease, and if present early, it may suggest an alternative diagnosis, such as progressive supranuclear palsy or multisystem atrophy. To test for postural instability, do the pull test. For this, stand behind the patient and gently tug the patient backwards by the shoulders. With normal postural reflexes, patients will maintain their balance by stepping backwards no more than one step. In PD patients, they will either fall or take multiple steps backwards. Of course, you need to be well supported to do this test safely and may want to ask the patient's nurse to help in case the patient starts to fall backwards. Great, we're almost there. 
To summarize so far, your focused exam will include the following. One, vitals for stability and postural hypotension. Two, inspection for masked facies, quiet voice, dysarthria, and tremor. And three, neurological exam for the absence of vertical gaze palsy, positive glabellar tap, and presence of bradykinesia, rigidity or cogwheeling, and postural instability. Okay, moving on to the final part of our focused physical exam, gait. Ask your patient to stand up and walk away, then back towards you. Observe whether they have difficulty getting up from a chair without using their arms, as this can be a feature of Parkinsonism, the differential being proximal muscle weakness. Four key features of gait that you should comment on include, one, is it fascinating? This is where the patient takes short, shuffling steps with increasing acceleration, so it looks like they're propelling themselves forwards. This is a result of postural instability, so you may not see this until later in the disease course. Two, do you see on-block turning? This is where the patient is unable to turn or spin on their heel like you or I might, but instead keeps their body rigid and takes multiple small steps at 90 degree angles to each other, making a square or block in order to turn around. Three, would you describe their gait as stooped and shuffling? For this, they will often be bent forward at the hip. And four, does the patient no longer swing their arms? Arm swing is a natural movement that patients lose due to hypokinesia. Ah, we're almost done. Or are we? You should also consider cognitive testing with an assessment tool such as the standardized MMSE to ascertain if there is any cognitive, perceptual, or language deficits, suggesting a component of dementia. Remember that a low MMSE score alone does not give you this diagnosis. However, if you're in a busy ED department, this isn't the best time for an MMSE as patients are distracted, tired, and usually acutely unwell. Just consider it for later when they're improving on the medical award, or in our scenario, feel free to do this during a clinic. If you find changes, it might fit with end-stage Parkinson's, or if cognitive changes are reported prior to the onset of Parkinson's symptoms, be sure to think about Lewy body dementia. And that's really it. Unfortunately, we do not have time in this podcast to adequately go into details on the diagnostic criteria and treatment of Parkinson's disease. Let us know if you'd like another segment that specifically addresses this topic. Let's finish off with our medicine minute. Did you know patients with Parkinson's disease are extremely sensitive to antipsychotics? This is because antipsychotics block dopamine receptors, and as we discussed under medications, they can induce Parkinsonian features. One dose of haloperidol can cause them to have such a decreased level of consciousness that they are nearly comatose. This is why you want to avoid all antipsychotic medications in patients with Parkinson's and use non-pharmacological interventions to manage the symptoms of delirium. If you absolutely must use some kind of sedating medication, for example if they have acute delirium causing them to be agitated and a danger to themselves or others, then a drug that can be considered would be quetiapine, since it has the least antidopaminergic effect. Remember, just like with all frail older adult patients, you want to start with the lowest dose possible when introducing a new medication, in this case 6.25 to 12.5 milligrams by mouth nightly. Prior to giving a patient an antipsychotic, an ECG should be done to ensure there is no prolongation of the QT interval. If the antipsychotic is continued for an extended period of time, the QTC should be monitored until the medication is tapered and discontinued when the delirium has resolved or improved significantly. Remember. Always start low and go slow. Alright, that's all for today. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Patterns of Parkinson's. 
This episode was written by Dr. Olivia Gein, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Marr, subspecialist in geriatric medicine, and Dr. Neary, general internist. This episode was recorded and produced by Leah Karianopoulos. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karianopoulos. Music by Lakshmi Santhamoa. As always, don't forget to check out www.theinternetwork.com for associated resources and our infographic. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon. Thank you.